Hello and welcome to episode 352 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly podcast of many topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and this is my favorite store in the Citadel. Uh, we're bringing back Mass Effect, an episode all about Mass Effect 2, uh, as part of our N7 November month of Mass Effect. But uh, who are my crewmates on this journey through the stars? They are John O'Logan. Hello. And Wes Island. Hey, everybody. Uh... Jono, Wes, myself, we have been playing the Mass Effect trilogy uh, throughout 2022. I'm spacing out these episode recordings apart uh, so that we don't go crazy and try to play all three games in one month. Uh, so as Guilty such, as charged. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> Jono maybe jumped the line a little bit, and, and I, think you're, I think you played Mass Effect 3 over a month ago. But uh, the way we're, we're recording this a couple months in advance, so... Uh, if we aren't quite aware of what we're going to be playing for the future of the podcast or aren't quite aware of how episode 350 went, I mean, that that's that's on us. But all of us did play Mass Effect 2, and we're excited to talk about it. Um, Jono, you played it for the first time, and Wes, and, uh, Wes, you and I played Mass Effect 2 some years ago. So I want to go uh, through with you first, Jono. Uh, what was your overall impression of the game? My overall impression of the game was that it was an absolutely fantastic sequel. I think that it took everything that Mass Effect 1 did. And Mass Effect 1 was a very good game, uh, but there were a few weaknesses uh, about it. Uh, some of the combat didn't really gel for me. Uh, some of the locations were a little bit generic, especially the planetary locations with the driving around with the Mako. I mean, and entering in enemy bases that were like copy-pasted warehouse warehouses and yeah, stuff. Just, there, there, there was a lot of recycled content yeah, the, in Mass uh, Effect 1. The barn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of recycle. I mean, obviously, they were working off a, uh, a tight budget in terms of their assets. But this game expands everything. And I, it expands everything in, even in terms of the Normandy. Uh, it's a much more epic story. Uh, it brilliantly takes all of the setups that were in Mass Effect and expands on them. So story is better. Character relationships are better. Romances are way better. The graphics, actually, you know, there's a fairly substantial uh, improvement in graphics. I I just, I really, really liked it. It was probably so my favorite one in the series. I mean, that's not really super hard when you consider the ending of three, but it was, it was very, very good. I think it probably is my favorite in the series. I mean, you can make the uh, comparisons to Empire Strikes Back. It's like, it, because it doesn't have the burden of beginning or the burden of finishing, uh, the dark middle, middle chapter is often one of the best, uh, the best entry in a trilogy. Uh, but I, I thought Mass Effect 2 made a lot of smart design decisions. They streamlined the uh, gameplay from Mass Effect 1 so that you have fewer skills, but they have huge impacts. The shooting is way tighter. Inventory it, system is way better. Yeah, the 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 uh, um, there's way less um, micromanagement of items and armor pieces so that you get into the action faster. There's way more side characters. They're all great. Um, they, they diversified the world of Mass Effect. Uh, you get to visit way more places that are... Um, that are like hubs and not and not just the citadel the citadel is designed in a smaller way but also there's so there's just less walking down empty corridors um the, the even the like scanning of planets and uh for for side content is way faster uh and the content itself um is more unique and richly detailed like like fewer of the same barns and warehouses being having their designs recycled uh i i love this game and i i knew i loved this game when i was replaying it uh a, a short while ago uh listeners if you want to find out when we're recording this uh, go to my social media see the date that i finished mass effect 2 and then add about a week um <laughs> I, I i knew i liked this game and that i had a good memory of this game but revisiting it 
um, and maybe doing more side missions than I did in 2011 when I played this for the first time. I think I like it more now. Like it absolutely held up for me. Uh, Wes, you also played Mass Effect 2 um, for the first time many years ago. How did it hold up for you? You know, this time around, I've replayed these games so many times, most recently, you know, a year ago or so. Um, this time I really realized how great Mass Effect 2 is, especially in context. Like, what an absolutely mind-blowing sequel it is. Um, how how much, you know, to, to the points that you all shared, how much snappier it is, how much easier to play. You just feel um, more engaged more often when you're not, you know, going into the inventory every, one, every five seconds and when the gunplay feels proper. Um, what really strikes home for me about this and and what makes a lot of... Bioware games stand out to me is the sense of home that you have um, in this case with your ship, the Normandy, um, you know, having your own quarters that you can customize and that you can go in and fully change out your, your armor loadout and your casual loadout and feed your fish and or see not. your hamster or not <laughs> more, more likely than not. And, and the fact that everyone's kind of subdivided into their own locations that feel very different instead of only having so many Normandy locations to explore, like in the first game, it really does feel more homey uh, in a way that I really, really get into. Now, I'm not a Baldur's Gate expert, but I think that your hamster might be a reference to the space hamster companion in Baldur's Gate 2. I do not know. I've never played Baldur's Gate. I'd oh, say okay. it's highly likely. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's maybe it's the first Baldur's Gate. The again, miniature again, giant I, space hamster that yeah. uh, Minsk... As, yes. as a pet yes that's it is that Baldur's gate one or two because I, I again I've, I've like played the beginning of both of those games but don't know them well i believe you you can recruit him in one but he's most known for a lot of the quotes from two okay maybe maybe it was both but yeah so like uh, and, and again that's a bioware game from the late 90s uh, or maybe right at 2000 i mean there are but, a lot of really good uh references in this game too oh oh uh, yes past uh bioware games the past bioware games and uh to works of science fiction uh of the of the past uh, again the, this is bioware's um sort of bespoke science fiction world in which humanity is uh, uh discovers a space station called the citadel which is the home of, of many different uh alien species basically that had uh, independently discovered technology from an old civilization called the protheans which uh which you know allows them to do faster than light space travel and through the citadel there's a confederation of different alien races humans are relatively young to citadel space and are and are growing quickly in influence and power which makes some other aliens nervous uh but then you uh, but then towards the end of mass effect one you learn that um this uh, it is not uh protean technology it is actually ancient technology from some uh, part synthetic, part organic uh, beings called the Reapers, which are giant spaceships that uh, cleanse the world of organic like life every fifty thousand years or so. Uh, and basically, this is uh, Mass Effect One. Uh, you fight a Reaper. The events of Mass Effect One represent the beginning of this round of Reaper invasion. And so, Mass Effect Two rolls around. Uh, you, Commander Shepard, can be a man or a woman. Uh, has a lot of different decisions that carry over from Mass Effect One. Um, you were a special human agent of the Citadel called a Spectre. Um, but at the beginning of Mass Effect 2, you die. Um, a mysterious ship that you know later is a, a, from a race of beings called the Collectors um, destroys the Normandy. Uh, s several space pods worth of crew survive. But uh, Shepard themselves uh, like, uh, is, is blown, out, blown out of the ship, um, briefly floats around in dead space, 
and then passes away. Uh, but eventually you are salvaged and um, uh, rebuilt and brought back to life by Cerberus, a pro-human terrorist organization of sorts that uh, was your enemy in a lot of missions in Mass Effect 1. But this time around, uh, Cerberus is one of the few groups that actually believes uh, uh, in Shepard's uh, warnings of an incoming Reaper threat. I mean, everyone should believe you because a giant Reaper ship and like destroyed a lot of the Citadel at the end of Mass Effect One, but a lot of people at the Citadel are like are unwilling to believe Shepard that um, that uh, uh, Sovereign was only the first of many Reapers to come. But but Cerberus believes you and wants humanity to thrive and survive. So they found Shepard, the like the best example of humanity they they know of, revive you with billions of dollars worth of technology and want you to assemble a team and use all the resources Cerberus has to find out more about the Reapers and stop them so humanity can be the dominant space in the, uh, species in the galaxy. So you're essentially working for the bad guys here. And uh, we mentioned this in the previous episode. Um, uh, there's more Cerberus in Mass Effect 1 than I remembered when I first played it ages ago. Yeah, but, a whole side quest. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, one whole side quest and a few like um, smaller isolated um, side missions. Jono and Wes, what did it feel like um, starting out working for the enemy, and and how easily did you embrace or were you suspicious of them, especially the Cerberus's enigmatic leader, the elusive man? Oh, you mean evil President Bartlett? Uh, yes, I mean uh, Ramon Estevez, also known as Martin Sheen, uh, is has a a slightly scenery chewing. But uh, pretty sincere and entertaining portrayal of the elusive man. <laughs> mm. uh, I really liked it. I think that the game did something very, very smart, which is although they obviously set up Cerberus as the villains in Mass Effect, uh, they populated the ship with uh, very sympathetic characters, a mixture of uh, old favorites uh, that you know you already trust, and also just allowed you to build some relationships on the ship with people who just seem like really good people like they're not they don't seem like bigots they don't seem like the kind of people you would expect cerberus to be employing uh which is obviously the plan like obviously the elusive man staffed the ship with probably the most sympathetic people he possibly could find for uh shepherds uh for the benefit of shepherd to convince shepherd that they were the quote-unquote good guys um so yeah i liked the fact that in the face of bureaucracy and the usual crap coming out of the Citadel, you finally had a group that was doing something. But then as the layers start getting peeled away, you discover that, yeah, they're doing something all right. They're doing a lot of things that you didn't know about and that are in the previous game, you would have taken extreme measures to stop. So I think that was very effective. Yeah. Um, if the Citadel is sort of too, uh, what's the word? Like too sensitive or too bureaucratic? Um, Cerberus, depending on your feelings or not, might seem too corporate or too ruthless. But they, uh, but I mean, the way that the morality system works in Mass Effect, uh, they call Paragon decisions ones that favor uh, kindness and inclusivity, and and Renegade decisions as ones that favor uh, completing the mission or ruthlessness but righteousness. Uh, so you like you're you're it's um Mass Effect doesn't allow for a completely evil callous shepherd the way that a game like uh, Knights of the Old Republic or Jade Empire does. Working for Cerberus has a different tone than working for the Citadel, but you can still work for the Citadel if you allowed the Cer Citadel capital ship to survive at the end of Mass Effect 1, and you allow 
uh, Anderson to be the human representative on the council at the end of Mass Effect 1. The council can reinstate you as a specter and ba uh, basically give you some small bonuses here and there, and you can be working for the, the Citadel and Cerberus. But my... Uh, my heinous bitch of a shepherd, <laughs> Kate, was not that. Um, the, 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 the council refused to speak to me, in fact. <laughs> so I, was, I did not get any specter bonuses. Uh, uh, Wes or John, like, how, how was, uh, how, how, what was the tone of your shepherd, the personality of your shepherd going into this game? My shepherd's definitely a meathead. That's, that's what I've been going for. You can't perfectly roleplay a meathead in Mass Effect, but as best as I can, someone who, who cares about the military side of it more than really anything else. You know, demands respect when spoken to, doesn't handle well when um, people give personal sides without asking first, as well as just generally hating the council with every fiber of his being. Um, they seem to remember and did not appreciate the fact that I hung up on them every single time I spoke to them uh, in Mass Effect 1, uh, or at least their predecessors, I should say, because in no way did uh, my old meathead save the, the, the council. Um it's an interesting way because usually I don't play characters this this mean, um, but because of how Renegade works, you can still be like an effective shepherd despite being, you know, not always the nicest sort. Yeah, but you get ugly. And and sometimes there are Paragon choices that you can still make as a Renegade or vice versa. It's not like that picking a Renegade choice always means you're forgiving you're forgoing a uh, a paragon choice there's th this game allows you to play both sides a little bit but uh you are hamstringing yourself and losing negotiating or interrogating power if you if you go 50 50 and not favor one heavily over the other so yeah it, but you still get like opportunities even if you're a paragon you still get an opportunity to punch a reporter yes um, and, and you know what? I never got to punch a reporter a second time in uh, this game because I played the original Mass Effect 1 on PC and then uh, 2 and 3 on PS3 many years ago ah. uh, because there wasn't a PS1 version of... I'm sorry, there wasn't a PS3 version of Mass Effect 1 until a little while after I played them. Uh, but, uh, but, but now that I'm playing it on the, in the Legendary Edition version, uh, I, I, I'm getting all of the connected storylines that I didn't see in the first time. Like, there's a... There is a the crime. ones that aren't dead. Yeah, well, there's a crime lord that you can sort of save in uh, Mass Effect One, or or at least help her take over her organization. And uh, she's Thane's recruitment missions target in Mass Effect Two. I had no idea they were the same character either in uh, in in Mass Effect when I played them uh, ten years ago because I uh, like Mass Effect Two did not remember me saving that uh, that crime lord character from Mass Effect One. And uh, and again, stuff like the current the Conrad Werner story and uh, the uh, the Algelani reporter story, they uh, like neither of them carried over when I played Mass Effect two many years ago. But I got to see the connections better now and it, it enhanced the the it enhanced the product for me. I I, I love seeing everything care, carry over so meticulously between games. Yeah, the meticulous nature of the uh, carrying over the story characters, your decisions. It's really, really well implemented in Mass Effect two. And I was I, when I finished Mass Effect Two, it even uh, highlights the decisions that are the most important that carry over to Mass Effect Three. I think there's only ten decision points, uh, some of them going back to, to one, some of them being strictly two to three. But there's a lot of small details that, uh, that like so. There's like maybe ten that matter and will truly shape the plot of Mass Effect Three. But there's a lot of smaller ones like Comrade Werner, that uh, and and punching the reporter that 
are, are remembered and are just little bits of of texture and and interest that I think enhances the overall experience. Playing the Mass Effect trilogy really feels like following the Marvel Cinematic Universe from Iron Man one to Avengers Endgame. The way that the way that it keeps building on itself. And I and maybe that's a tired analogy, but I it's the best one I came up with. Speaking of uh, punching the reporter and and all those things kind of tying together over there, um, this game introduces those trigger decisions uh, yeah, for yeah, Paragon um, and Renegade. Yeah, I, th- I think they're called interrupts, but yeah, essentially yeah. at any given time during a scene, they, there might be something pop up for your right trigger or left trigger corresponding to Renegade or Paragon, respectively, if I recall correctly. Maybe my my favorite one of these, you know, you can use them. This is how you punch the reporter in this time. Instead <laughs> of, you know, selecting a dialogue tree, it's a little bit more immediate the, the way that you choose to do so. But maybe my favorite is when you're going to recruit Archangel and uh, you have to deal with someone who's repairing a gunship, lest that gunship come at you at full power when you go to actually help out Archangel instead of defeating them. And you have two options when you do that. The renegade option is you take... Um, a cattle prod essentially sitting next to the person repairing it and you just go and take it to that person until they fall down smoking which you might miss the paragon option if you just pick to do that right away because you figure this is how i'm going to fix it which is as you're walking away you press the trigger and your character just reaches up pulls a plug on the gunship and keeps walking um, (laughs) which might be my favorite paragon choice in the entire game my favorite Paragon choice in the entire game also involves Archangel, but we'll talk about that a little later. Um, but l- let's talk about Archangel a little bit. Uh, I mean, we mentioned that Cerberus is a pro-human organization and that it's, and that it's a, a ship uh, piloted, or I should say crewed, by the best um, and most motivated uh, all-human crew that the elusive man can find, including your two starting companion characters, uh, Miranda, who's sort of a uh, like a, a Cerberus special agent, and uh, Jake Jacob, who's more of a Cerberus, like, field commander uh, soldier type. And they, they're kind of the Ashley and Caden of this game, where Miranda is a little bit more ruthless, like, do-whatever-it-takes attitude, and Jacob is more like a uh, of an honorable soldier, but still uh, believes in the Reaper threat and believes in, uh, in, 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 uh, in the good that Cerberus can do. Yeah, but I um, like Jacob a hell of a lot more than I like Caden. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Absolutely. I, I, I think Jacob is one of the more boring characters on your team in Mass Effect 2, but he is still way better than Caden. Um, we're not going to disrespect Jacob the way we disrespected Caden. Yeah. Honestly, the best part about Mass Effect Two is the fact that even if you, even if he's still alive, Caden is in it very little. <laughs> yeah, even if you let Caden live, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you know, spoil the punch too much in Mass Effect Two. But uh, let's talk about these characters because from the very beginning, the elusive man makes it clear that you uh, need to recruit the best for your mission, and you get dossiers on a bunch of potential recruits. And even though you are a, a you are, you are a, a, a pro-human organization. Uh, a lot of your special recruits are aliens. Like they're not, you're not anti-alien. You're just, you're just, you know, trying to do the what's best for humans. So uh, the crew that you recruit, you start out with uh, Jacob and Miranda automatically, and uh, there's ten other dossiers. Um, uh, sort of a secret thirteenth, but we can talk about that in a minute. It's you don't need to recruit all ten to beat the game, but they strongly encourage to recruit uh, as many of these uh, special operatives as you can and a couple of them are required for the story but uh they are so diverse they are all kinds of different uh alien races plus a couple humans i i think your your full cast of uh, not including shepherd the full cast of 12 is uh four humans and eight aliens i love this cast so much and they make 
recruiting the uh, the cast and assembling your team and then sort of earning their loyalty by special by special character specific missions that unlock later a, a core part of uh, of the game structure but basically at the beginning you uh, do a, a couple early missions then you get the the first five set the first set of five dossiers then a couple more story missions then you get the second set of dossiers and after you've completed the certain number of missions by a certain time they unlock the missions that lead to the mass effect 2 end game so there's a, they give you a lot of freedom with uh, how many missions you want to do and what order to do them in, with only a couple really required to go through to the end. But this team of characters, recruiting them, like talking to them on your ship, spending time with them, earning their loyalty with with, with specialized loyalty missions, and then and then deciding their fates in, at, at the in the end game of Mass Effect Two is a crucial part of this. So. Uh, I, I was monologuing a little too long. I apologize, but um, uh, Jono and Wes, tell us about a favorite character and how they're recruited. Okay. Uh, I mean, my favorite character in the game is still Tally. I love Tally. Um, she was one of my favorite characters in the first game, uh, and she is uh, probably my favorite character in this game as well. Uh, Tally has grown up a lot since she was on her uh, pilgrimage. Um, She's now a respected, uh, she's now a respected uh, member of her, oh, crepes, what is it called? The, why am I blanking on it? It's a, well, her name is Talizora Vas Raya, so she, um, she, her home ship is the Raya on the, uh, on the flotilla. Uh, uh, Raya at first. Yes, yes. Yeah, but, but they call, they call, uh, the, the Quarians were ousted from their home world by their former servants, uh, a, ro- a race of robots called the Geth. And so they live on just a fleet of spaceships, and they refer to it as the flotilla or the fleet. Yeah, the flotilla. Um, so now she's a respected member of the flotilla. She's leading her own assignments. You first run into her in the, uh, I think it's the third mission of the game, where she is leading her own te- uh, her own team of Quarians to uh, rescue a Quarian who was on this colony that was attacked. Um, and she is a little bit suspicious that you're with Cerberus, as pretty much everyone is. Uh, but as the game continues, you go on a mission to a planet. Um, the sun is dying, or it, it's it's premature. It's getting old fast, essentially. Um, and Tally is there with a uh, a bunch of Quarian Marines, and you need to uh, you need to rescue her. And hopefully, uh, one of the Quarian Marines, who's a pretty cool character actually, who comes into play a little bit later in the game for her loyalty mission. Um, yeah, Cal, Cal Rieger, voiced by Adam Baldwin. Yeah. Uh, Adam Baldwin. Oof. Yeah, we don't need to talk about him. But yeah, but uh, Cal Rieger's cool though. Yeah, the character's pretty pretty cool. And uh, you know, you you do this mission, you you rescue you rescue her, you get the data, and uh, she joins your crew. Um, and once again, she goes down to uh, she goes down to engineering, um, and uh, puts her her technical skills to use. And she is always my favorite person to visit on the ship. Uh, just love her. She is. Uh, I, I, again, I'm playing as a. I'm playing as a uh, paragon, uh, Jane Shepard, who is also uh, a very monogamous lesbian, uh, and and obviously Tally is straight. Well, mostly straight, and uh, so she's not a romance option. So I, in my in my role playing thing, uh, Shepard has a, an, a a crush on Tally, but obviously nothing's Aww. ever going to happen there. Are you going to continue with Liara through the whole series? Or I mean, you've already you've already played it. So did you? Uh, oh, stick, yeah. stick to a monogamous relationship with with Liara. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I I mean, Shepard. My Shepard is a uh, is a horrible flirt. 
she flirts with everyone, all the all the all the ladies, but she is very she is very monogamous. Uh and uh which which there's a scene in the third game which we won't get into involving a shower that is just like the most awkward thing um <laughs> when you're coming at it from that point of view anyway my, i my, love tally uh, tally's amazing my shepherd is a facebook's relationship status it's complicated who uh, romance liara in part one uh thane in part two and i'm not sure what i'm going to do with part three but it's going to be messy yeah, probably. I mean, it probably will get messy at the end of this game, too, when you do the uh, Shadow Broker DLC. Oh, it did. Yeah, I, I, I've already uh, finished that. But uh, Wes, what, um, what's one character recruitment arc that you particularly enjoy in, in Mass Effect 2? So, you know, I, I was I wasn't still am all Team Tally. Uh, I'm right there with you, Jono. But what really struck me this time was uh, even though she's not given a whole lot of dialogue on the ship, Kasumi Goto really struck me well this time around she's a dlc character that was added a little bit later um who's kind of a a techno hacker spy kind of a character um and recruiting her is very simple the first time you go to the uh the citadel an an advertisement starts talking directly to you and if you go and interact with it you'll find out that she's controlling it and pretty quickly she'll say hey i've already signed a contract i'm coming with you you just have to help me with the thing um but that thing that you have to help with is one of my if not my favorite loyalty mission in the whole game yep mine too um because it's so very different from anything else you do there's there's very little combat there's very little um of, of the standard like let's go through you know essentially a, a dungeon or bunker and and shoot up all the things it's a um, heist it's a heist <laughs> you you have to find dna you have to keep someone talking to get their voice print you have to you, you, sne- you sneak around a mansion break into a vault it's 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 a it's it's a lot of it's a fun mission that isn't really like any other in the game Exactly. And and Kasumi herself is this this wonderful mix of kind of nostalgic and and business like, um, not to mention in combat. She's very entertaining because she will occasionally just go invisible, show up behind someone and kind of punch them in the back of the head, essentially, <laughs> um, and just absolutely wipes out pretty much anything with it. But um, she's kind of this this feisty, spunky kind of character, but who actually has some pathos going on under, underneath it all. And that never really goes away. Interesting. I, I didn't know she was a DLC character because, again, I've only played the Legendary Editions. Well, uh, let's talk about DLC a little bit. I um I, I did play most of the DLC when the, I played this on the PS3 because most of the DLC was baked into that version. But Zaid and Kasumi are were both originally DLC characters, and um all of the stuff with the uh with the Firewalker um Hammerhead ship, as well as the Overlord mission, the Layer of the Shadow Broker mission the arrival mission, and about half of the optional viable weapons and armor in this game, including the Kestrel stuff, at least one of each uh, of each gun type, and the uh, the Blood Dragon armor, like all of that was DLC. This game had somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to a dozen DLC purchase options, but the, the really big ones that I think are, are key are Overlord, Shadow Broker, and uh, um, Zaid, Kasumi, and Arrival. Those are, those are the five that you really want to get to. But uh, especially since Zaid and Kasumi are, are fully are fully realized characters with uh, with very easy, fast recruitment missions. But, you know, loyalty missions that are as rich as uh, as anyone else's. But I want to circle back a little bit. Um, uh, we, we, we mentioned that every character has a recruitment mission and then a loyalty mission. And if, if a character is loyal, then they le- they gain an, an extra power for use in combat. And uh, that can also factor into how, um, how it, the end game treats them. But Tally's loyalty mission is I think another one of the best in the whole game because uh, she's basically accused of... Uh, because you get to point and scream objection? 
uh, uh, close to it. Um, yep. it. Like, yeah, I mean, she's accused of uh, of treason by the fleet, which is an in, uh, an incredibly stark accusation because of uh, she was just fulfilling some requests that her father emailed her. Basically, it ends up with you having to defend her in court. You have to explore a a contaminated par- um, ship that's part of the Quarian flotilla, and at the end of it. Uh, you can choose. You realize that Tali, that Tali's father, was doing illegal geth experiments, w- which are forbidden by Corian society, and, and Tali was unknowingly sending him data for uh, for that. You can choose to uh, reveal the evidence that her father was treasonous, which which acquits Tali, but but uh, dis- disrespects her father hugely. Who and her father's passed away by this point. Or you and can, was a hugely influential figure in their society. Yeah, he he was an admiral, which is like, yep. w- which is their ruling council, it's essentially. Or you can have Tally be guilty, but then she, so she's excommunicated from the fleet, but she joins uh, permanently your fleet. So she be, she even changes her name from Vos Raya to Vos Normandy. Or if you're persuasive enough, you can convince the council to. Uh, uh, to not convict Tally with with very high Paragon or Renegade scores, and if Cal Rieger survives uh, survived Tally's recruitment mission, he'll speak words in her favor. And if you safely uh, rescued the traumatized Corian from the Freedom's Progress mission at the beginning of the game, he'll speak at uh, at the council uh, in at during Tally's. Uh, uh, courtroom moment and if if all if enough of those align she can be acquitted but she still says f you to the council and be and joins the normandy permanently afterwards it's 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 really good seeing the different systems interact and uh getting a lot of good dialogue and uh and character moments out of tali who's, who's not one of my favorites but i i still i still love her dearly because i love this entire cast dearly that was a long monologue for me as i which i apologize for Jono. but how about that Corian trial major big fan of it uh it's a great mission uh the actual the actual uh mission part is cool it's kind of creepy it almost has a much more of a zombie type vibe than a lot of the other geth missions because the geth kind of have like a zombie type feel to them but this one specifically it's like this was a ship that was inhabited that the quarians lived on and you kind of you're going through it and uh finding these bodies and things like that the entire time and piecing together what happened it's uh it's a it's a great mission, and then of course there is the courtroom thing, and not just that. You also learn a tremendous amount about their society because you start talking to uh, the different factions uh, of this uh, this this uh, the the ruling council, and like seeing the different uh, mentalities that are going into uh, their policies involving uh, the Geth, for example. Uh, and this plays into the next game, uh, where it, this is a this is a mission that really pays off in the following game uh, when the Quarians. Uh, basically go to war with the geth and you need to figure out how to get them uh get them to stop fighting the geth and uh fight the reapers instead so yeah this is a very important mission lore wise moving forward but also you just get to know tally uh, a lot better it's it's a lot of character development here for her and not just because she loses her father although that is a a significant part of it yeah yeah she discovers um her father's uh, actions for what he was doing on that ship with the geth tech that she sent over but also uh like she discovers his death and the circumstances of it so it's a it's it, it's a very emotional uh uh tempest for poor tali um dealing with her father's death and that the fact that he um was doing illegal activity all at the same time it's 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 it's, it's a it's one of the better loyalty missions uh, I mean, just give a, a shortened sentence or two to all of the playable characters here. We mentioned Zaid and Kasumi. Zaid is a uh, is a tough mercenary that you eventually learn was the founder of one of the factions of mercenaries that you fight all the time. Because uh, there's three 
uh, mercenary factions that are among the more common uh, uh, organic enemies. Because <laughs> mm. like, every enemy in the game is either organic or synthetic, and there's, a, there's abilities that deal more or less damage to organics versus synthetics. Um, the alien races and collectors are, are all organic, but... Uh, but Geth and uh, other droids and other machines or robots are considered synthetic. It, like it can, it can get weird. But the, the other characters that you recruit, there is uh, Morden, the delightful Salarian sci- fast-talking scientist, who helps uh, discover what collect what the collector technology is uh, that you're working against is. Uh, you at, in the Freedom's Progress mission, you discover that all the human colonists on that uh, in that city disappeared because a race of aliens called the Collectors. Uh, paralyzed them with uh, with mechanical insects and then just loaded them up in pods onto their ship. And uh, what you're trying to do at the beginning of the game is discover what the collectors are doing and why they're abduct- abducting human colonies. Uh, then uh, after Morden, there's Grunt, who is a Krogan um, that was built in a test tube as a new Krogan child because you know the, the, Krom- the Krogans are plagued by a genophage where only one in 1,000 Krogan children uh, survives childbirth. And uh, and he was uh, Grunt was bred to be the perfect Krogan by uh, by an old Krogan warlord named Okir, and so Grunt was programmed in this pod to be full of knowledge and rage and energy, but he doesn't really know what to do with it. So it uh, um, his mission is you going to the uh, Krogan homeworld of Tuchanka and let Grunt like sort of join a clan officially and uh, learn about his heritage a little bit. Uh, Morden's um, loyalty mission is also on Tuchanka. He, ha- he finds one of the old scientists that he used to work with when he was part of a secretive group of Salarian scientists that built the genophage that's plaguing the, the Krogans. And you can help more and um, Morden like use entire is processing it very logically. He believes that what he was doing with the genophage was inherently righteous and, and for the good of the galaxy, but he has doubts about it. And his former student Malin um, all is like a sort of, amplifies Morden's doubts. You can you can let Morden shoot Malin in his loyalty mission and destroy Malin's data that was researching the, the genophage, or you can use a, one of those Paragon interrupts to stay Morden's hand and like and allow him to sort of forgive and forget and maybe change his mind about uh about whether the genophage was good or not. And that's that's just two of two of the characters. Um yeah, Morden but, is one of the most interesting characters in this game in terms I of love uh, his characterization. I, I started with Morden and Grunt because they might be my two favorite characters in this whole game. They are they are so different. Krogan, uh, uh, but Grunt being this sort of entertaining, feisty teenager uh, that was built to be the perfect warrior, and Morden, who is an elderly scientist but just full of energy and and, uh, and a manic personality, but but has but is constantly at odds with uh, basically an atrocity he committed uh, while he was uh, part of a different organization. They were two of the guys I would always go and talk to on the ship. Oh, yeah. I, they're they're great. Well, I think this goes back to what Wes was saying earlier, which is uh, the ship feels there, there's a very homey feel on uh, the Normandy, and it kind of reminds me a little bit. This uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of college, uh, in the sense like there's you know everyone that you know is kind of in the same space, and you'd kind of walk down the hallway and visit people, and it it, it had that kind of feel to it, and just the people on the ship for me made it feel more like home. Yeah. It's like your team sort of becomes a family as you, uh, as, uh, you meet them. And I, we, I think we maybe mentioned them already a little bit, but, uh, Dr. Chakwas and, uh, and Joker, the, the pilot are both returned from mass effect one. 
Um, and uh, and your ship now is basically a recreation of your old Normandy SR1, and now it's the Normandy SR2. With a but personality. With a, yeah, but now it's a personality because you have an, an online, uh, uh, I think they call it, she's technically an AI. Her name's Edie. But uh, in, in the Mass Effect world, uh, they're very suspicious of AIs because they know how destructive they can possibly be. Um, I mean, look at the Geth rebelling against their Corian masters. So they use v, uh, VIs a lot, or virtual uh, AIs, which are which are basically sophisticated programs that do not have full autonomy or full awareness of themselves. So, like you, you'll hear about rogue fighting a rogue VI uh, a lot, in uh, or you know a, a VI has taken over the station and has a and has. And it has, there's a danger of it, uh, like becoming self-actualized. Like there's, they're, they're suspicious of AI in this game. But you get an AI on the Normandy named Edie, who is basically a delightful secretary slash personal personal assistant who plays a larger role in Mass Effect Three. Mm. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm over monologuing a little bit because I want to tell the uh, listeners uh, details about, of the game that they may have missed. But I just, I'm just so excited talking about Mass Effect because it is such a beautiful, well-realized world that has so much fun and interest in it. Yeah, it's a it's an extraordinarily well-realized world. And I have to admit, the I guess, I mean, there are more characters in the game, but another character that we haven't really talked about yet is the Normandy 2. Uh, and it really does remind me, I know that you're not a Star Trek fan, uh, Slosi, <laughs> but it kind of reminds me a little bit of the whole Enterprise, Enterprise uh, A situation in the, the Star Trek movies, where it's like, it's like, the old ship but it's newer and it's you, you kind of develop a different relationship with it but it's similar enough that uh it's still uh, you still have affection for it which is really I, nice I, I do not know a ton about star trek i've seen only a couple episodes and a couple of the movies but i i 100 believe believe that uh the writers and, and designers of mass effect have watched plenty of star trek Oh yeah, it's like I said in the last episode. This is very much a it's a space opera that takes place in a much more Star Trek universe than a Star Wars universe. But you know, I want to get back to that team a little bit because again, I love these characters so much. Uh, Wes, who's someone we haven't brought up yet that we absolutely need to? Have we talked Thane yet? Uh, I briefly mentioned that my Shepard hooked up with him, but other than that, no. Yeah, it's worth talking about Thane a little bit more because Thane is fascinating, absolutely fascinating, as as this kind of assassin with uh, a nearly religious code. Uh, about how and when and why they kill, um, as well as a an illness that puts them kind of coming to terms with everything that they've done and everything that they will do near the end of their life. Thane also has perfect sense memory, uh, which is just a consequence of how Drell brains work. So he is always immediately recalling like everything he felt during a certain memory that he's describing. And he uh, he's a, an amateur poet who sometimes speaks in in free verse poetry. So it's a Thane is sort of dark and mysterious and kind of looks like the amphibian man from Shape of Water a, a little bit. Um, and, he, and he's very aware of his mortality because he only has about a year or so left to live. He, uh, his loyalty mission is about him uh, reconnecting with his son, who is uh, trying to become an assassin in his own right. But uh, it's it, it's really fascinating. And, he, um, and Thane has a couple really cool scenes where he just disappears into a crowd or snipe someone out of nowhere because he's uh, communicated as an extremely cool, efficient uh, stealth assassin. Really interesting conversations you have with him too. Uh, in the uh, in he he sets himself up in is it in the armory? No, what, what, no, he's oh, in life the support. he's in yeah, life he's, support. Yeah, he, uh, he, which he is needs, funny. Yeah, he needs one uh, an area that's temperature controlled and dry, so he lives in life support. Yeah, yeah, and uh, his instant recall where he when he remembers something he like relives it. Uh, 
there are some interesting scenes between him and Shepard in their conversations, which I really, really, really cool character. Yeah, no, Wes. When I uh, when I said there's someone really need to talk about, I, I was uh, I was sort of leaning towards uh, guiding you into into talking about Garrus, our our, our oh, angel. Yeah. Yeah, our, our last holdover from Mass Effect One. He's he's a Turian. Um, he's called Archangel at the beginning because he's sort of a vigilante uh, mercenary on the space station Omega, where uh, Arya Talok, one of my favorite uh, minor characters in the game, is the is the sort of crime boss that runs Omega. Um, and it, uh, you, he's a dreamboat. Ha- yeah, uh, Garrus is wonderful. Uh, you help him. Uh, like solve a problem of dealing with some mercenaries uh, that that wiped out his old mercenary band uh, on Omega, and then his loyalty mission later is about him tracking down the guy that betrayed his group of mercenaries. And in his loyalty mission, there are Paragon interrupts to stand to st- stand in the way of Garrus's sniper target to uh, like so that Garrus doesn't kill um, his former comrade in cold blood. And if you decide to go the, par- the renegade route, you can just not do that interrupt and Garrus will get the shot off. No problem. And, uh, and put that memory of his, uh, of his team dying behind him. But you, you can have him reconcile with his former teammate. If you keep standing in the way of his gun, it's, it, I think that was the coolest use of interrupts, uh, in the game doing Paragon side of Garrus's loyalty mission. Mm. It's a, it's a choice. That's the, I mean, the interrupts are just, they're all about choices. Uh, and I think dramatically speaking, the choice to put yourself in between the gun and, uh, and the potential, I guess, target, uh, is narratively more interesting to me than Garrus killing him. But I guess like I had that choice, but, uh, I, I don't think either of you did. Oh, I killed him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let totally. burn. Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 yeah, your whole company died because of him. He's gone. He's, he's dead to me. Mm-hmm. And now he's dead for real. Garrus for me gets the, uh, gets the most improved award from Mass Effect. I didn't much care for Garrus in Mass Effect 1. There was just not a lot of character there. He just kind of seemed like a massive stick in the mud and just very uncompromising and not all that interesting. And then in this game, they start developing him more and he kind of becomes funny. Uh, and you get, to, as you get to know him better and, uh, he becomes one of my favorite characters in the game. I think everyone loves Garrus. Yeah, even if you don't rom- romance Garrus, he becomes sort of the like like almost your bro. Like he's uh, kind of the right hand man. Uh, I'm I've got your back at all the time, to- always Shepard kind of uh, character. And in, in Mass Effect One, he was he was a he was with CSEC, so basically he was a Citadel police officer who was frustrated by things like the bureaucracy and. Uh, of and of um and and uh having to always report to a superior so he i think em- embraces uh the freedom of working with cerberus uh, a, a little easily and his uh, life of being a vigilante on omega in between mass effect one and two um hardened him a little bit and, and sort of made him a little bit more roguish and fun i think roguish is is the perfect word for it because he is he becomes like the most swashbuckling of your friends like weirdly enough like he's having his own adventures he's doing his own things he's a lot more independent than he was in the first game um now that he realized he has to be separate from Shepard, he realizes that the only way i'm going to be able to get things done is to do them myself yeah i like that uh i like that garris has learned a lot from Shepard in the first game and garris has taken that forward and kind of created his own crew and his own his own squad and that just kind of falls apart uh which gives it a really tragic element yeah um but you you get to close the book on that at least a little bit at his in his loyalty mission, but uh, they're 
Garrus is always there for you. And uh, um, whether you're a male or a female shepherd, uh, I, I think Garrus is sort of is just sort of your brother, your your buddy through the entire trilogy. And uh, Garrus and Tally are the only characters that are on the main core of the team in all three uh, Mass Effect games because uh, whoever survives between Caden and Ashley does have a brief cameo in Mass Effect 2, um, but does not join your party. And Liara is uh, in Mass Effect 1 and 3, but in Mass Effect 2, she's only playable in the DLC layer of the Shadow Broker. Uh, mm-hmm. Should we talk about that now or uh, or um, a little bit later? Because I'm, I'm down. I think <laughs> this is the right time. Yeah, Layer of the Shadow Broker was a $5 DLC episode that was available a couple months after Mass Effect 2 came out. So a lot of people played it after beating the game and sort of entering the adventure mode, like clean up, uh, do whatever missions you want section of Mass Effect 2. But it is maybe the coolest mission in the whole game. Um, uh, Liara has become an information broker on planet. Oh, shoot. What's it called? Uh, Something's wrong with I. I, uh, not, Ilium? Not Ilos. Ilium, that's it, yep. Ilium, which is which is just the Latin uh, name for the Greek city of Troy or the, the Asia Minor city of Troy. Uh, anyway, but uh, so that's why the Iliad is called the Iliad. But yeah, on Ilium, uh, Liara is, has become a information broker. Uh, she's on the tail of the Shadow Broker, who's an ex- who is a galaxy-wide powerful information broker that uh, uh, that has the influence of business and politics and what have you. Um, and they even say that the Shadow Broker's level of influence is comparable to that of the Elusive Man, which is, you know, impressive. And uh, so th- you can do a couple missions for Liara and meet her on Ilium, even if you don't have the Shadow Broker DLC. But the Shadow Broker DLC on the original 360, but which is, you know, included in all other versions of the game, is a, a really special mi- series of missions to take down the Shadow Broker for good. Uh, you start out fighting a uh, an Asari Spectre. Asari is the same race of alien that uh, Liara is. Uh, an Asari Spectre that you think is investigating Liara's disappearance, but in fact is the assassin that the Shadow Broker assigned to kill Liara. Uh, so you uh, you you work with the Spectre briefly. Then when you reconnect with Liara, you take them down. There's a there's a, a Star Wars ass chase sequence uh, through the city of uh, through like the air traffic of Ilium. Then you finally. Uh, uh, take uh, take down um, her name. Her name is uh, I, th- I think I think it's Tila Vasir. You take down Tila Vasir at a, at like a resort hotel, and uh, and which gives but that gives you the cor- coordinates for the Shadow Broker's ship. Pretty good boss fight like, too. Yeah, she she's a pretty cool boss fight. She can teleport. She has a lot of biotic powers. She's not a, she's not a, a cakewalk. But uh, then that leads you to the Shadow Broker's lair, which is in an incredibly inhospitable pe- planet that like uh, where a ship that's constantly flying between like intense heat and intense cold in the middle of a storm and is impossible to track. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah, you fight through waves of mercenaries and droids and eventually take down the shadow broker, w- which is a person that is an alien race that is uh, before unseen in the mass effect world. Uh, the shadow broker is a Yog, which is a, a highly intelligent, highly violent race of aliens that the citadels uh, uh, charged basically by law. No one is allowed to, bring yogs into sophisticated space because they're too dangerous but the previous shadow broker like uh decided to pick up a curious yog uh a- anyway and that yog was so intelligent that it ended up killing the previous shadow broker and taking over its operation sorry which is pretty when, cool when you said curious yog i had a mental image of the information broker being the man in the yellow hat oh yes yeah you know uh, <laughs> you know they never say um what 
race uh, the previous shadow bro- or broker was or their name or possibly not even their gender. Uh, so there, that's a bit of a minor mystery. Like, like how long has there been a shadow broker? How many shadow brokers have there been if they're if the apprentices keep killing masters like they're Sith lords? Uh, and uh, yeah, um, curious Yog, the curious little Yagi. Uh, he he's he's a pretty brutal boss fight on his own. Yeah, and plus you don't have your uh, third member on that one. Yeah, it's just Shepard and Liara um in the second half of that fight. And then uh, once uh. Once Liara, once you beat him, uh, Liara becomes the new information broker. Yeah, and I don't know if you did a lot of exploring around the Shadow Broker's lair after you after Liara takes over the operation, but it is some of the most fun optional reading in the entire oh, game. Oh, there's some great lore. Oh God, you can check on the the, the uh, private dossiers of every major character in the game, including your own team. Um, I uh, Tali is trying to uh, hers shows that she's trying to uh, install a personal massager in her bodysuit, but it's but it doesn't work quite as planned. Um, Grunt, you see a bunch of his confused uh, search engine searches where he first he's looking up uh, the 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 victories of Okir and Shepard, and eventually he. Uh, he, fi- he finds pictures of dinosaurs, and then you see a bunch of misspelled hit searches for different types of dinosaurs. <laughs> um, Just amazing. Uh, uh, Kasumi has a crush on Jacob, and she has written haikus to how beautiful a man he is, which is adorable. Uh, like all, all of the stuff in the Shadow Brokers layer is really fun to explore, and it gives you some extra some extra tech and some extra some extra resources too. It's a it's it's a fun optional content. Yeah, I think that uh, it, it's such a Okay, remember when I said that my my shepherd is like super hyper monogamous, uh, which is the case uh, in this game. But in terms of the way that characters have changed, Liara has changed so much from her original character in Mass Effect One for uh, several reasons. She's it, not a naive archaeologist anymore, not at all. No, uh, Shepard dying really took Liara to a very very dark place, and uh, Liara pulled out all the stops to try to uh, get find uh, Shepard's body and eventually get Shepard uh, revived. Um, so there are some very interesting uh, interrupts uh, throughout this thing, especially if you've remained uh, loyal uh, to Liara, where you uh, you want to hit her with a couple of Paragon uh, interrupts, but they are very quick, very, very quick. And if you don't hit them right on the right on the money, you can miss them. So it's if you if you are in a relationship with uh, Liara, you kind of have to fight for it in this game, which I like. It's It just feels very real to me uh, in the sense that a lot of relationships in uh, video games and in fiction in general it, it are very easy. Uh, you, you know, both people don't really need to work at it. But in this particular case, Liara's armor is up so heavily that Shepard needs to really put an effort in to break that down uh, and uh, get back into a relationship with her. Um, aside from a little kiss that they had uh, when they first see each other, but aside from that, yeah, it's uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, and if you if you romance Liara in Mass Effect One and then romance someone else in Mass Effect Two, I, I experienced this a little bit this time and when I first played the game um, uh, ten years ago or so. Uh, she's she's jealous and spiteful a little bit. The relationship with Liara is rocky in Mass Effect Two, uh, but you can rekindle it in, in Mass Effect Three and. Um, 
she's a character that grows over the course of the series. Like uh, Tali Garrus and Liara are really different people through each of the games. Rex too, if he survives. Uh, if, if, if Rex survived Mass Effect 1, he's the chieftain of his clan in Mass Effect 2. But if he dies in Mass Effect 1, then a much more manipulatable chieftain is in charge in Mass Effect 2. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's impressive seeing the growth of these characters across the three games. Uh, but I guess we should go into the other characters first. Um, there's a, uh, a specialized um, Asari warrior named Samara that joins you. Uh, you have to do sort of a, another detective-style uh, mission uh, to recruit her to your group in the second half of Mass Effect 2. She, uh, she's so focused on her mission that um, basically she's in a holding cell, and you have to solve the mystery that she's implicated in. Uh, in, or else she'll, in the interest of her mission, start shooting her way out of the cell. So you, you manage to thankfully avoid that um, and by cooperating with the detectives and then allowing Samara to join your team. And then you learn in her loyalty mission that Samara is seeking out her daughter, Morinth, who's a serial killer of sorts that, uh, that kills um, people that interest her by, uh, by copulating with them, which, because of her unusual Asari biology, will cause them to basically hemorrhage to death due to neural overstimulation, which is, you know, a, a very sexy way of being a serial murderer, I suppose. But the the real ki kicker is, um, yet to when you track down Morinth in Samara's loyalty mission, you have to go around a bar in Omega, basically being as cool as possible to get uh, a Morinth's attention. And then when you confront Morinth in her apartment, Samara comes in, they're in like a standoff, and you can choose to kill Morinth and uh, have keep Samara on your team, or kill Samara, have Morinth replace her on your team, and Morinth will have a, very, a, a, a couple different skills and a way different attitude when you talk to her on the Normandy. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, that was what I was mentioning before, like the 13th secret character. Yeah. Uh, you, you can replace Samara with Morinth um during the loyalty mission which i did and oh man is morinth oh. trying to flirt with you if you keep her around and if you agree to hook up with her towards the end of the game you die yeah you get a, <laughs> a solid game over and you deserve it you really earn that game over screen if you decide to hook up with the uh with, with the serial sex murderer in that towards the end of the game which is a choice you can make it's the game over screen for people who skip cutscenes. <laughs> yes for people like me that always uh just go for the renegade option no matter what uh I, this has not happened to me uh, uh i i did manage to resist morinth's charms but i did do a mistake um by just always sort of leaning towards the bottom right of the screen that mm -hmm. i i ended up replaying a mission because of it uh let's go back into the mission structure of this game around the middle of the game you find out uh where the collector's next likely attack is and it's a human colony called Horizon. And on Horizon, you meet Caden or Ashley. Space Karen gets to Karen. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're, they're both pretty rude to you, especially Ashley, who was already pretty rude to begin with. But you basically thwart an attempt by the collectors to abduct a bunch of humans. Well, you don't really thwart it. Uh, 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 most of the humans do, are abducted, but you do slow them down and clash against collectors for the first time. And uh, you, there are these insect-like beings, and you def and it definitely confirms that they're the people that attacked the Normandy at the very beginning of the game. And so the you know that the collectors are co collaborating with the Reapers somehow, but it's unclear at this point. Uh, after the mission on Horizon, the second group of dossiers open. I think we've talked about all except for one of them. Uh, am I forgetting somebody? Uh, except for legion no yeah other than legion and, I, and i'll get to legion i think we've done it oh wait else. no uh, jack 
Oh, Jack. Oh, my God. I feel so bad. Yeah. Jack is in the first group of dossiers, so you can do uh, you can recruit Jack before Horizon. Uh, she is an incredibly powerful human biotic. Uh, again, so she basically has tele- uh, intense telekinetic powers and you organize a prison break to save her. And it's a uh, like you learn a little bit about a, a private galactic prison system uh, when you talk to the warden and the guards on the way to meeting Jack. Uh, but then the instead of allowing Jack out, you have to break out because the warden decides you're uh, you're too much of a valuable uh, business asset to keep imprisoned there than uh, than you are like as a as a client to free Jack. So you have to you thought you were cooperating with the warden. Really, the warden wanted to imprison you. You do a prison break with Jack. Jack is uh, is rude and rough, but really cool and with a really tragic backstory. How much do we love Jack? Uh, I guess that depends on uh, how you're coming at Jack in terms of uh, your relationship. Um, Jack is, despite the fact that Jack reads as bisexual, like Jack even has some dialogue where she says she slept with women before. You can only romance Jack as a uh, male shepherd. Um, And uh, if you are a male shepherd, you have the option to have uh, casual sex with her right off the top. But if you do, she'll just she will shut down and that's it for the rest of the game. You can't get any information. If you uh, don't choose that option though, you can start learning about her tragic backstory, um, which is really interesting. Uh, Jack is like a, I I guess Jack is kind of a sociopath in a lot of ways, um, but in other ways is just a very broken person. Yeah. She's a very fascinating view as to how people deal with trauma differently. Because a lot of times you get kind of one view of trauma and like people are very sad and then they get over it. And that is trauma in a lot of media. But um, Jack has taken it out in all kinds of ways, both productive and self-destructive. And it's a more realistic way of how a lot of people will kind of swing back and forth on the pendulum based on things that affected them way back in their childhood, uh, which is why I think she's so dang fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and uh, listeners, if you haven't played the game, Jack has a shaved head. Her body is covered in tattoos. She is uh, brash and rude and violent. Uh, she was the subject of experimentation as a as a child and young woman and eventually broke free of the Cerberus facility, yet same Cerberus as you, that held her. But she cooperates with you because you did rescue her, and she acknowledges that this is that you are not the same Cerberus people that imprisoned and tortured her. Uh, her loyalty mission is going back to the facility where she grew up, realizing that the other children there weren't the happy children with freedom that she assumed they were. They were experimented on and killed in order to preserve her. You know, Jack's um, uh, like, like like drugs were tested on the other children to assure that Jack could survive them, like uh, situations like that. So Jack has to uh, reconcile a little bit with um that she was not exactly alone on that facility, but and but has a lot of anger towards it. And I, I think ultimately, no matter whether you do a, a Paragon or a Renegade, you do blow it up, right? Or is, is, is there a Paragon option not to blow it up? I can't remember. If there is, I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was I, I absolutely nuked it from orbit after we uh, after we um, figured out what was going on there. But uh yeah, I feel bad for forgetting Jack. Um, she, uh, I I didn't use her a lot this playthrough because she doesn't have any moves that uh that zap shields except for warp, and I already had Miranda and Thane for warp. Hmm. I didn't use her very often either, but I love the character. She's also a shotgun character without any shields, so she dies a lot. 
if you don't, if you aren't good, if you aren't good at setting biotic combos. And uh, uh, again, this is a little bit simplified from Mass Effect One, but action has a, a lot of gunplay, five different weapon types, uh, but also biotics, which are basically like force and telekinetic powers, uh, tech, which is using technology to to freeze, sh- zap, burn or make things explode in an enemy, and gunplay skills that just enhance your weapons. So like, ultimately, a lot of the damage will come from guns, even to use a biotics-heavy or a, or a tech-heavy class. But there's a lot of fun tricks you can do with tech and biotic skills. And, and, and Jack is uh, a bunch of powerful biotics, uh, similar to Samara and Morinth, I guess, while characters like Morden and Tali are, uh, are entirely tech. And like, like Morden can f- uh, freeze and burn enemies or, or stun organic ones while tally's tech skills are all anti-synthetic or anti-geth uh take a drain- pause yeah uh <laughs> like taking over their ai or uh or draining their shields it's a uh, like designing your team you, you can all, you always just pick whoever your favorites are of course but like if you know you're going to be going up against a ton of geth you should probably bring along people that can damage enemy shields or or synthetics and if you're going up against collectors or something you probably should avoid tech only characters like Tali. There's there's an of an element of team building and uh and and loadout building in this game. I was an infiltrator, so there was a lot of cloaking, a lot of sniping, and occasionally throwing out an incinerator an incineration ray to burn through enemy armor. Yeah, I was a infiltrator too. I'm always an infiltrator. I just like using a sniper. Wes, I, I know you told us in the previous episode, but what was the class you went with this run? Uh I stuck with soldier, which uh on the one hand, I regret. On the other hand, I've never done it before, so why not try something new? Um, <laughs> it's so much funner to play with powers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, say. my my original run was at a, was uh, a decade ago was as a vanguard, which is you know a shotgun shields biotic character, and it was really really fun. I I loved my vanguard run, and then when I attempted a second run through the trilogy, it was as a soldier, but I thought it was way even though it was probably more effective because assault rifles are really strong in in the hands of a soldier class. It was a little bit more boring because I, th- I think the fun of Mass Effect really is balancing the gunplay with powers. Absolutely. And I mean, you've got a couple of powers, but none of the active powers are really all that interesting or do anything as cool as biotics do. So, yeah, no, like uh, doing the Vanguard pull charge was amazing every time. As an infiltrator, I love cloaking to either get extra damage or get get the hell out of dodge. And uh, and being able to do incinerating or AI hacking on the side was fun, too. Like it's... Uh, I, the only classes I know well in this game are Infiltrator and Vanguard, but I, I highly recommend both. Um, but th- that goes to the, the final character that we haven't talked about yet. Legion is a Geth. He, uh, you, you have to infiltrate a, uh, a collector ship um, at one point to uh, when you find its location as part of the story. And then after the collector ship mission, you realize that the, the item that you need is a Reaper IFF, which will allow you to pass unnoticed into the collector base. Uh, and so you find a derelict shell of a reaper and to try to pick up its IFF. And, but in that, in that derelict reaper, um, you meet Legion, which is a, a geth sniper that is, that is helping you instead of, uh, instead of, um, instead of helping the husks that are, that are attacking you in that, in that reaper derelict. Uh, and, uh, here's the mistake I made by not reading slowly enough and, uh, and just clicking through dialogue too fast. Um, uh, Legion becomes injured in that mission after you obtain the IFF and get out of there. Uh, and you can cho- choose to reactivate Legion and talk to him and have him join your party as its final member. Or the 
uh, renegade option is to sell him to Cerberus. <laughs> so I accidentally, after I did the Reaper IFF mission, I accidentally sold Legion when I thought I was, I thought he would still join me. It was just doing a renegade points option. But really what that does is uh, Legion is never, uh, never joins your party. You get 50,000 credits and uh, you fight Legion as a mid boss in Mass Effect 3. <laughs> when uh when you're fighting cerberus people in mass effect 3 so the, the, that's a uh, not something i wanted i <laughs> i restarted the mission ate some paragon points just because i wanted legion around and uh and then got to see some pretty great interactions between uh legion and tali especially after Le- legion uh legion's loyalty mission that has you learn a lot more about get society it's a uh, legion's a great great character the only problem is by the time he joins uh you're almost done with the game i i wish there were he's I wish he joined earlier so you'd get a little bit more screen time with him. Yeah, you also need to be very careful. This is a point where I had to uh, restart a few missions uh, because I started this mission, and I, I guess we're going to get into this a second with the... Yeah. Uh, this is the end game proper. Yeah, the end game proper. Uh, if, if you go after the IFF, uh, it starts a timer, and you only have a few missions until uh, there is a invasion of the normandy and the entire crew gets uh kidnapped by uh the collectors um and after that point you i think you have one mission leeway left and then you have to go rescue them or they'll just all be dead which you know is not what i wanted to do and i still had uh, a few side quests left at that point so i needed to restart like three or four missions back just because I, I wanted to get all of this side content without losing my entire crew. Yeah. One helpful piece of information to go into playing Mass Effect 2 is do all the side content you possibly want to, either all of it or however much you can you want to, before that Reaper IFF mission. Because you only have one or two extra side missions of leeway before you have to go into the finale. Yeah, I think you have two missions and then you have that particular mission where uh, Edie gains sentience and uh, Joker saves the ship. And then you have, I think, one mission after that that you can do, but that's it. Yeah, yeah. J- Joker is the only um, human that manages to manages to avoid the collector's clutches. and uh, But to, the only way to escape is to give Edie full control of the ship which you're not really supposed to give that level of autonomy to an AI because that can, you know, that could lead to another geth situation. But after Edie gains control, um, she, she saves the Normandy, picks up the, uh, Shepard and, uh, and the, and the, you know, the, the fighters of your crew. And then you, uh, have the option to start the, the final mission, which is called the suicide mission. Um, if you like, but amusingly Edie, uh, her personality changes a little bit after you give her full autonomy. She starts calling Joker Jeff instead of Joker. Uh, and she starts uh, like addressing Shepard with um, with uh, I think she starts calling you Shepard instead of Commander. Just like Edie softens a little bit noticeably after you give her full, full control. After the IFF mission, you should definitely do Legion's loyalty mission because that's your only chance to do it. And then you maybe have time for one more before you really got to do that uh, suicide mission. Um, uh, so, so uh, Wes, what, what's what are your thoughts on? on Edie in this game, because it's sort of easy to dismiss her as just an, an, inform, an informative robot, but they clearly have more designs for her when you, uh, after that scene of Joker giving her control. Yeah. She's got a lot more interesting going to her. Uh, even back in mass effect one, um, there is a, a mission where you go and find a, um, a rogue VI that seems to be self-actualizing as an AI. And there's actually like a small piece of dialogue in in the second game here where, uh, you find out that that was the basis for that they built Edie off of. 
Yeah, was that in the in the Shadow Broker dossiers or somewhere else? I think it's in the Shadow Broker dossiers. Right. Um, which is just fascinating to me that they'd kind of bring it around full circle. But Edie's clearly got a lot of personality. If you go talk with Joker up front enough, you get a lot of her personality even before she's unshackled. Um, and obviously you get a whole lot more with her um, over the rest of the series. Um, yeah, there's some good banter up front. Yeah, it's it's some of the most entertaining banter in <laughs> in the game for my money. And and Edie plays a pretty large role in Mass Effect Three. That's uh that's uh really worth exploring. But but that's not what this podcast is about. Um, before we go into the suicide mission, the two other big DLCs in Mass Effect Two are uh, Project Overlord, which gives you some sort of vehicle missions, kind of like the Mako in Mass Effect One, or you know, um, loading them into weapon upgrades. But also a mission called Project Overlord, a slightly disturbing mission where a man, uh basically um tortures his own autistic brother in hopes of of being able to uh, manipulate or communicate with geth it's a it's it's pretty disturbing but and with an obvious paragon ending to free the uh the 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 man being tortured or uh give the man being tortured back to cerberus so they can continue observing it's a it, 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 I mean, the rewards are good and it's interesting dialogue, but it's a it, it's a rough one. Um, the la- and the last DLC arrival came about a year after Mass Effect Two released. So uh, and is a, it's about a, a group of humans that have been indoctr- indoctrinated by a, by Reaper technology and are trying to activate a special uh, a special relay that will allow the Reapers to arrive sooner than planned. Uh, and you have to sort of infiltrate their base. Um, uh, kill a lot of humans and then destroy the Reaper technology and escape back to your ship. It, it, but I think Arrival makes a little bit more sense if you beat the game and then do Arrival. It's definitely <laughs> because, a post-game DLC. Kind yes, of thing. It's, it's, it's the last one that they released and it, it makes more, I think, more sense in post-game, even though I think I did it before Shadow Broker this time around. So there was some there was some slightly odd dialogue. It, it still worked, but I think it makes better sense as post-game. Well, it also it also leads directly into uh, Mass Effect 3 and the, the status yeah. quo at the beginning of that game. But what I really like about the this particular piece of DLC, and apparently a lot of people don't like it because it is very linear. You're on your own fighting, so you don't have your squad behind you. Um, but what I really like about it is that Shepard is put into a no-win scenario um, where normally there would always be a way to save the day and save the and, and save uh, the innocent people and in fact there is a paragon prompt where you can do you can start to do just that but then you're thwarted uh and you have to make a very very hard call and i really like that i like that it put shepherd who whether you're whether or not you're playing it as a paragon or a renegade like always wins and all of a sudden this is a you can't win you can delay but you cannot win you cannot save these people um, and I loved that. I thought that was a really, really uh, smart move. And, and also the people that you're saving are a, a colony of hundreds of thousands of Batarians. Yeah. Batarians are a barbaric alien race. They're unfriendly. They're not allowed in the Citadel. Uh, and so they're always portrayed as villains in this game. But it, you basically, you you in order to, to slow down the Reapers, you have to destroy a colony of Batarians. It's an unavoidable choice, just like you described, Jono. But it also creates diplomatic issues that carry into Mass Effect Three. I mean, it wasn't a is, difficult decision for either of you, but for my well, yes, correct. Yeah, <laughs> for my character, it was a it was very painful. I am pro Batarian murder in this particular playthrough of Mass Effect Two. You're pro murder in this particular playthrough. I am. I, I Kate Shepard is a violent lady. She really is. I uh, if. Oh boy! Like if there was a way to maybe kill Morinth instead of have her kill me, I would have gone for it.
But uh, alas, uh, we're near the end. Um, the suicide mission is sort of a culmination of all of the weird uh, of systems in Mass Effect 2. Uh, you're, you're, any of your characters can die. It's possible for your entire team, including Shepard, to die. But you get more points towards survival if you completed every character's loyalty mission. Uh, you also have to choose characters for specialized roles. Like you need to choose a tech expert to infiltrate the collector base. And I think uh, Tali will work and Kasumi will work. Maybe, maybe Legion also, but like, if you don't, if you don't pick someone that's an expert tech, uh, then they will die. Uh, and the same thing for, you need a, a powerful biotic to maintain a shield going around you uh, while you infiltrate the base. And if you pick anyone besides Jack or Samara or Morinth, I think they will die. So, like it's, there's a lot of choices that could go a lot of different ways um, over the course of the suicide mission, but uh, leading to a finale where basically you have to get a certain number of points uh, with each character having a, an inherent point value with a plus one if they were if their loyalty mission was done. Uh, it's it's it, it it it's crazy, and so it made me very very glad that I found Miranda's adorable sister and uh, and <laughs> and uh, and helped her escape her her. Um, meddlesome father's clutches uh, her, uh, it, that character model bothered me though she's supposed to be they're supposed to be identical except for age and in both this and in mass effect 3 they're kind of they they don't look anything really alike she's awkward looking but the email that she sends miranda at your desk uh is really really cute and i liked that a lot i i, I like it when a video game has texts or emails that seem like real texts and emails so i was uh, i was i, I like that you know we didn't but, yeah, really the, talk about miranda yeah, we didn't. Um, Miranda is, uh, she's the human Cerberus operative. Uh, she was basically built in a test tube by her father to be a perfect woman, including like intelligence, attractiveness. It's a little weird listening to her talk about herself, basically saying, yeah, I'm perfect. Uh, deal with it. Um, <laughs> but she's, she's a little bit ruthless. She's a, she's a very pro Cerberus. She's a little bit more renegade than Paragon while Jacob's the other way around. Uh, she's a romanceable option for a male shepherd. And uh, I, I used her a lot in battle because she she's the only character that gives a damage boost and health boost to Shepard and not just herself. And uh, and her skills are powerful as well. Um, she can use biotics and tech a little bit. So I, I used uh, Miranda a lot, and I generally like her, but uh, I, I admit she's a kind of a forced femme fatale that might not be to everyone's taste. Yeah, and she was the uh, cause of some controversy in the original game. Uh, with a a, a particular the particular framing of a shot. Oh yeah, no, the, no, everyone knows the Miranda booty shot. I mean, yeah, it's it, I, I'm no, I'm not trying to hide it. Oh, I know. It's not so much the shot; it's the context of the shot that's the problem. Really, it's like she's opening up, but it's they're sexualizing her at the same time, and it's it it, it was a weird choice. Um, thankfully, Bioware's gotten better with weird choices over the years. Yeah, they're more inclusive and less obviously male gaze. If you look at their uh, the progress of their video games from, say, Mass Effect 1 through Dragon Age Inquisition. Um, like, Dragon Age Inquisition and Mass Effect 3 have way more uh, options for a bisexual or same-sex relationship uh, involving Shepard um, or, or the... Uh, or, or the Inquisitor, for the case of Dragon Age Inquisition, um, and characters will have more agency. Like, 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 uh, there are fewer characters that will just obviously go with Shepard every time, and and ones that have more personality and will react different ways based on their uh, uh, sexuality and gender and gender identity. It's mm. um, like Bioware has, like, again, looking at their progress from 2008 to 2014 or so. 
they they get better. But in Mass Effect Two, there is a lot of weird male gaze, um, and it's a, and it's more heteronormative than later Mass Effect games. Um, which I, again, it's I, I don't want to make an excuse, but but it's a it, it, Mass Effect Two is still good. Their romance and relationship stuff is fun, but not the best in Mass Effect Two. It gets better in the later games. I I, I hope that doesn't make me sound too much like a shill, but. <laughs> I, I genuinely enjoy Mass Effect 2's uh, story and characters and writing, I, and I always do a, a romance of some kind when I when I play it. But I, I admit that <laughs> they weren't the most enlightened uh, this time around. But uh, yeah, back to that suicide mission. <laughs> I, I didn't have a transition. Sorry, just I just had to go for it. Um, if you make good decisions and <laughs> not mo- unlike and, Bioware, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and most most if not all of your characters uh, have um, have their loyalty missions done, it's uh, it's quite doable to have the your entire crew survive. Um, the final boss is a very creeper creepy human reaper hybrid because uh, reapers have basically been collecting humans to extract their DNA and and, and build new reapers using synthetic technology with human biology. Because every time the Reapers come around, they choose a race to, as the most interesting or strongest or most dominant, and have that race be the be the basis for the the next um, generation of Reapers and act as their agents in, uh, for the next uh, culling. So uh, the collectors are genetically modified former Protheans, yeah, they, uh, who are definitely insect-like, but but still distinctly different from what collectors are. And the reason that a lot of the uh, reapers resemble sort of cuttlefish or squid with uh with like with like plates and ten- tentacles and sharp edges is because many of them are based on uh on on protein DNA along with uh with AI and and synthetic materials. So it's it, it's weird. You're, you are basically fighting a giant human reaper skeleton hybrid uh at, at the at the end of Mass Effect Two, and it's a little unsettling. It's a weird fight. It's not as hard as some of the regular skirmishes from earlier that that same mission, because you just have to sh- just like shoot the supports that are holding it down, and then shoot it a couple more times, avoid its big laser beams. It's not a challenging fight, um, but it's it's just a little weird and creepy because you're fighting like I, I guess basically an infant reaper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it's interesting. I loved the suicide mission right up until that fight. At that fight, it kind of lost me a little bit. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the design of the human reaper hybrid. Uh, it's creepy. It is. It's just, I didn't, I don't know. That fight didn't really do anything for me. I just found it kind of boring. Uh, loved the choices afterwards that you can make, but that particular fight just didn't click with me. It's kind of like the big fight at the end of any given Marvel movie where they have to up the the scale of everything to, to make it more impressive, but that doesn't always work to make it a more like emotionally satisfying um or you know in this case gameplay wise a satisfying of a fight yeah to use another movie analogy every single pixar movie has to end in some big race or caper or battle when the the pixar as a studio maybe not as much recently are well known for these uh really emotional and nuanced and interesting uses of the animation medium that don't necessarily lend themselves well to a big caper or fight but because it's an animated movie that has to you know, end in a high stakes sequence, there's always some some silly caper at the end of a Pixar movie that's not as good as the rest of the movie before it. And I, I, I love Pixar, but I wish that there wasn't a big 
weird spaceship caper at the end of Wally, because the because the, the I mean the, like the first forty minutes of Wally are, are like silent movie poetry, and then the end is closer to Mass Effect than what Wally started out as. Honestly, it would have been happening if Wally was just that forty minutes, and that was it. Yeah, it's um, it, again, it's an odd choice having to fight a giant uh skeleton human reaper at the end of mass effect 2 but the ending choice to either um salvage the collector base uh for cerberus's use or to destroy it with destroying being the paragon option is pretty cool and does carry into mass effect 3 that's one of the 10 or so key decisions that uh that they will remember yeah like that but but i i mean i, I gotta say it, I think this is one of the most satisfying games of the PS Wii 60 era. I, I really love it, but it's most of it is because of these characters. I love that you're that you're recruiting a diverse, interesting uh, team, and they give uh, a lot of great attention and opportunity for every mem- member of the team. I, I think this is one of the iconic crews of in RPG history. I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, every character in this game is interesting in some way or another. You might not like them all, but you cannot deny that there is something going on uh, with all of them that make them uh, into very unique, interesting characters. No one feels cookie cutter to me. My favorite thing is that they're so diverse that you're guaranteed to find at least one character that you get really attached to and fall in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's something for everyone in in, uh, in the cast of Mass Effect 2. I, I think that the cast of Mass Effect 2, uh, and maybe you can add Rex and Liara in there as well, um, for being important players from Mass Effect 1 that are is still important NPCs. I think just about any of them could carry their own video game. Like, I would do heist, a game that was, or DLC that was just heist missions with Kasumi, mm-hmm. or a prequel that's about Morden as part of the secretive Solarian STG, or uh, Samara being a, uh, being a, like, a monk-like educator um, writing wrongs across the galaxy. All of those sound like cool video games to me. And a lot of them are books in the extended Mass Effect universe <laughs> because they wrote like eight novels or something uh, uh, during and after the uh, um, the, the, the trilogy um, going on. Oh, yeah, there's but comics, there's books, there's all kinds of things. I have a collected issue of the comics and it's something like 300 pages. There's a lot of Mass Effect content out there because this world is so rich and these characters are so great. And I think that in the trilogy... Mass Effect 2 is the one that does the best by its characters. And I, I and maybe it's because half the game is recruiting your team, but it's it, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, Suikoden had the right idea, too. Uh, it, it's like sometimes the supporting characters are more fun than the main characters. So it's fun to play a game that's about the supporting characters to a degree. Yeah. And it's also the idea. I mean, going back to Suikoden, building up your base. Yeah, where like there are so many empty rooms on the Normandy and as you get more people, those rooms are populated and it's it's neat and you the ship starts to feel like home again. And you can ask every character, um, hey, is there an upgrade you think this ship needs? And they'll uh, unlock and, and and if you give them some resources, they will uh, they will give you an upgrade. Three of those upgrades will uh, save people in the suicide mission. Yeah, it and saves uh, uh, it saves Jack. It saves. Wait, who else does it save? I don't. I know that one of them, uh, talking to Garrus, will upgrade the guns, and talking to Tally will upgrade the ship's shields. Those are two of the three. I forget the third one. But uh, but like like um, one of your uh, some some of your characters will die if you don't have those ship upgrades. And other ones are like Legion um, will upgrade his own sniper rifle. Uh, I think I think Thanes is like upgrading the probes that you can send uh, into planets or something. The game gives you these interesting characters and rewards you with dialogue and gameplay improvements 
the more that you uh, interact with them. And it is, it's, it's very powerful. I think that these, uh, I guess, uh, 14 counting Shepard, 15, if you count Liara, these uh, 15 main characters are one of the best in RPG history. And, and I felt like I was going to a family reunion and seeing all of my favorite uncles and aunts and cousins uh, <laughs> when I, when I replayed this game for the first time in 10 years. Yeah. Well, over half of the game is, you know, the majority of a heist movie where you're you're getting the crew together and learning about them and figuring out how to be a cohesive team uh and that's so satisfying to play in a video game to be able to actually interact with these people and and have conversations with them yeah i think another thing for me about this game that we uh that we talked a little bit about at the beginning is the fact that you are working for essentially the bad guy you are working for the bad guys but it makes the elusive man into a much more compelling villainous figure in this game than i feel like the elusive man plays in the next game which is when he genuinely is like one of the main antagonists uh in this game there the role he could be a good guy and there's there's just enough wiggle room there to make you wonder like is is there hope for him like is what he is doing really for the good of all people like obviously he's a humanity uh supremacist which is uh, a nightmare and the fact that you're working for this guy is uh is very dangerous but he he keeps making good points and keeps doing the right thing um and it's all an act it turns out um there's a lot of commentary in that about how uh a lot of i guess supremacists and fascist regimes and, and people who you know we're cutting through the red tape we're doing what needs to be done and yeah they can be tremendously effective and they can do things that uh democracies or councils can't because you know they, they have very singular focus uh there's not a lot of other opinions in the room but the reality is those groups are dangerous and they can lead to horrible horrible uh, atrocities such as what jack went through or such as what happened with project overlord um so yeah the fact that you're working for these people and there is distrust of you because of that and that distrust carries with you over into mass effect 3 i think is some of the most interesting uh content in this game i mean i i, I don't mean for this podcast to become a meta commentary on fascism but let, let's go there anyway uh mussolini's italy had the trains running on time and hitler's and hitler's regime uh, brought Germany out of a horrible economic depression before he started uh, becoming the, the the historical monster that we know him to be. So, uh, so the elusive man, like everyone can agree that we need to save these uh, human colonists that are disappearing and we need to stop the collectors and prepare for the reapers. Like everyone agrees that we have to do that. And the elusive man is, is doing that. But Shepard's goal is whether you're Paragon or Renegade, is to save the galaxy, while the elusive man's goal is human supremacy in the galaxy. And it's it's a little... In Mass Effect 2, it's easy to, to accept the greater good message of the elusive man without thinking of what will happen after you stop the Reapers. While, when in Mass Effect 3, it's very clear that the elusive man is a villain who intends to... To, to rule the galaxy as a in a human centric society when it all is said and done, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't think they handle it badly necessarily. Like in Martin Sheen's performance, I don't think they handle is, it badly. Is, no, is is, is is kind of scenery chewing, and uh, and he's a bit of a cartoonish villain in Mass Effect Three. But they, they make it clear that uh, it's easy to view the elusive man as good in two, and easy to view him as evil in three. 
but while also admitting that he never changed and he was always the same person. Yeah, in two, he's just so damn, he seems so damn reasonable and he's not. Um, and that also plays into the idea of uh, indoctrination, which I think is one of the coolest concepts in all of these games. And that that's really played into in the uh, in, in one of the DLC packs. Well, the thing I love about indoctrination is that it doesn't turn people into a zombie. It doesn't change them into like a mindless slave. They're still the exact same person. They still have the exact same personality, jokes. Everything is the same. You can't know if someone's indoctrinated until they reveal their true allegiance and to me that is very interesting yeah it, it changes um it like starts out as whispers in your head and eventually changes your ideology and philosophy and reason to be rather than your personality or your executive functioning um and uh, we'll talk about indoctrination more in the next episode uh because we we've gone on for quite a while and it is time to end this episode of retro encounter Jono and wes thank you so much for playing this game along along with me over this uh summer and fall uh, I, I have had so much fun replaying Mass Effect 2, and I could not ask for two better panelists and podcast partners to parlay with. Uh, it, it, was, uh, um, it, it was a treat replaying this game and a treat talking to you. Thank you. Absolutely. It was great talking about this. Thank you. And listeners, thank you as well for listening to the three of us jaw about it for well over an hour and a half. Uh, Mass Effect 2 gets a ringing endorsement for all three of us, if you don't mind me putting words in y'all's mouths. Uh, and I, I think that the Mass Effect trilogy really is a special project within uh, video games and RPGs. If you're not inclined to play Western RPGs, try this one anyway, because I, I really think it's that worth it. But uh we're not quite done with it yet. Uh, next week in uh, Retro Encounter, we are doing an episode all about Mass Effect 3. It will be just like this one, but two years more advanced. Um, we'll talk about, uh, oh boy, Freddie Prinze Jr. and uh, and the Geth uh, versus the Quarians and the Krogans versus the Salarians and, uh, and a whole bunch of interesting threads that are tied to a close in uh in this trilogy uh, fourth game don't know about a fourth game did i try to install that fourth game uh a few days ago and it still tried to break my ps5 yes it did so i don't think sense to me but all right i don't understand either but i don't think there's going to be a mass effect andromeda episode of the podcast anytime soon unfortunately i don't think uh, there needs to be to be completely honest i really <laughs> enjoyed it but i mean it's not it's not these three games but you know what's a better game than Ma than Mass Effect Andromeda? Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Uh, that game has um, set the RPG fan world on fire. Uh, a bunch of RP RPG fan staff played it and are excited to talk about it. So we are doing a Xenoblade 3 spoiler cast uh, in early December. It'll be either the first or second week. We, have, we haven't uh, nailed down the schedule yet. But also in the first two weeks of December, Jono, you and I are going to record the episode that we were born to record. Oh, God, I'm so excited about I, we are not going to say what it is yet. I will leave that as a treat for next week. But we are going to um, do a fantasy casting exercise uh, in the first half of December, and I could not be more excited. But uh, listeners, if you want to email us about Mass Effect or Xenoblade or voice acting choices or anything else, the best way to contact us is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also comment on RPG Fans boards, our Facebook page, our Twitter and Instagram, which are called RPGFan.com. There's also a Discord server, a YouTube channel, a Twitch channel, something going on every week, every day on those uh, on all of those various platforms. Please interact with RPG Fan however you choose to. There's also an RPG Fan store now. If you go to rpgfan.com slash shop, that will link to the RPG Fan store hosted by Tee Public, uh, where you can get RPG Fan shirts, 
coffee mugs, phone cases, and a number of other things with more designs to come later. Uh, th- that is a very fun way to directly support the website and the podcast. Oh, speaking of podcasts, RPG Fan has two other fine podcasts, uh, Random Encounter every two weeks hosted by you, Jono. Yeah, I have no idea what we're doing on Random Encounter right now because that's in the far future for me. Yes, we are. Uh, we are recording this. And it is going to post about two months after we record. So we do not know what the most recent episode of Random Encounter was. Oh, I can't believe uh, they shadow dropped Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom early. It was amazing. Oh, it was a great episode of Random Encounter we did on that. Uh, and, and of course, there's a Rhythm Encounter every other other two weeks. That is uh, an episode of an RPG music. I don't know what the future holds for Rhythm Encounter, but I hope that my wildest dreams have come true. And there's an episode that's only ten po- Sato's Disgaea soundtracks. Uh, that I'll, I'll, I'm going to bring all eight choices to that episode. It's going to be insufferable. I can't wait. By the time this is posted, uh, the more, one of the more recent episodes will actually have been their Halloween episode. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we um, we are uh, we haven't recorded it yet as recording this, but uh, by the time this airs, the Castlevania Halloween episode will be live. Um, I don't know exactly how it went, but Wes, you and I are going to bring the heat. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, Random Encounter, Randomness, Rhythm Encounter, Rhythmness every two weeks. They're both worth listening. Uh, You can review Random Encounter, Rhythm Encounter, or Retro Encounter on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever uh, service you choose. Spotify has the the highest plurality of our traffic, surprisingly, or at least it was surprising to me. Uh, Who doesn't subscribe to Spotify? Maybe you should, though. Uh, But if you want to give us feedback, we'd love every kind of feedback that you can provide, especially if it's five stars out of five. Uh, but if you want to leave, leave us five-star feedback uh, at, to us as individuals and not as a podcast or as a website, how do you do that? Let's tell them, starting with you, Jono. Uh, you can find me at jlogan at rpgfan.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Jono underscore Logan. Now, Wes. Best way to find me is on Twitter at Wes Iliff. I do accept five-star reviews. And now me. On tw- I'm easiest to find on Twitter. I'm at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times, and on RPG Fans Discord, I am Monsoon Mike. I'm also Solosi at RPGFan.com, but I never check that. Maybe I should. It's it, it, it's uh, it's full of like E3 previews from 2018, and it's it's a jungle out there in that e- in that inbox. Uh, stick to Twitter. But uh, listen, uh, listeners. Um, I don't know if you were playing this game along with us or if you've played uh, Mass Effect 2 before, but uh, go into that suicide mission with as much confidence as possible. Buy those upgrades. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>